0: Bibles, Genesis chapter 12. We broke last week from our series through the Gospel of Luke to consider the message of Peter in Acts chapter 2. In that sermon, those of you that were with us last week, you'll remember that Peter demonstrates that two psalms of David, written a millennium earlier, pointed prophetically to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and to the ascension of Jesus Christ. And since we took a break from Luke last week, I'd like to take the opportunity to look at one other passage that demonstrates from a different angle the Christocentricity of the entire Bible. That's a fancy word, but it makes sense to you, I think. Christ, the Christocentric. The center, that Jesus is the center, even of the Old Testament text. David brought that out in his prophecy in an amazing way, and we find this is the case throughout the Old Testament, particularly at key places in the text. I'd like to demonstrate this from Hebrews chapter 7 today, but we'll start here in Genesis 12. Now, as we do this, I'd like you, first of all, if you will go with me, across the pond, as they say, and picture yourself on the aisle of a great European cathedral. The arched ceiling rises high above your head. The stained glass windows filter beams of sunlight cascading over the ancient pews that are filled now in this great cathedral with people gathered to observe a wedding. They're all dressed in their finest, and following a dramatic pause, a grand pipe organ fills the cavernous cathedral with a joyous processional. You're standing there on the aisle, craning your neck back, and you see a single flower girl, as we call them, making her way slowly up the aisle. And as she passes, you wonder in your mind for a split second if you've ever seen a cuter girl in your entire life. There she is. Dressed immaculately, cared for immaculately, and very beautiful in her own little way, a little representative of the bride who is soon to follow her down this same long aisle. Then after several coupled attendants pass, the bride takes or makes this long procession herself to the altar. And as she passes you, you are struck with her beauty and so taken with her singular importance at this event that all thoughts of the cute little flower girl fade into the background. The bride is the main event, the center of attention, the one that the flower girl prepared you to see in this procession. Now the relationship of these two individuals illustrates one way in which the Old Testament prepares us for Jesus Christ. I'd like you to keep that image in mind of this flower girl proceeding down this long aisle, followed eventually by the bride walking down the same aisle. The flower girl, in theology terms, we could call a type. And the bride who follows is the antitype. It helps me just to remember this, that I just named the little girl type, and the bride is her aunt. So she's antitype. Antitype. And that helps me keep that in mind, because I can never remember which one's which as I'm thinking through it. But just consider that, and keep that picture in mind. Down the long aisle of salvation history, God periodically sends a type a key event, person, or set of circumstances that anticipates an antitype which will follow later. The flower girl does not walk down the aisle dressed as a clown riding on a unicycle. That would not prepare you for the bride. She looks like and she proceeds like the bride. Who will follow her? We see the connection between the two, and we are prepared for the one by the former, for the latter by the former. Now, let me illustrate this uh, further if we consider our situation in this wedding. Among the seated wedding guests, there might be 85 little girls in this great cathedral. But this flower girl is obviously unique, isn't she? She has a unique relationship with. To the bride. In like manner, New Testament writers find types in the Old Testament text which point to antitypes in the New Testament, particularly to Jesus Christ. Now I'd like to illustrate this further today and let me do so by laying before you four what we could say are exhibits. Exhibit one is Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. These are three snapshots that we need to have in our mind in order to make any sense, of the antitype that is before us today. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This blessing of Abraham, which we've considered often, is of crucial significance to the Old Testament development of biblical truth and is of crucial significance in the New Testament in its fulfillment. Exhibit number two, a couple chapters later, Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis chapter 14, Abram's nephew Lot moved to the city of Sodom. Sodom was aligned with four other city-states there on the southern end of the Dead Sea Shores. And an alliance of four other kings from the Transjordan region crossed over the Jordan, came down into this area, defeated these five kings, and took Lot captive, Abram's nephew, and all of his possessions. Now, Abram, in an act of amazing faith in God, takes his small army of just over 300 individuals, chases these kings, and defeats them with his small army. He takes Lot back, and he takes all of Lot's possessions back. As Abram is returning home from this stunning victory, we pick up the text in verse 17. Genesis 14 and verse 17, After Abram returned from, the, from defeating Keteleomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavah. That is the king's valley. The next thing that we read in the text in verse 18 is, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, Now, Melchizedek will be considered in his meeting here with Abram, down through verse 20. And you'll notice then in verse 21 that we have reference again to the king of Sodom. So verse 17 introduces the king of Sodom. Verse 21, the king of Sodom is again mentioned, so very clearly, verses 18, 19, and 20 are an interruption in the text. In this journey back, after this great defeat, Abram meets this Melchizedek. A man of some mystery in the text. But notice in verse 18 what it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Three things that we must consider here. Melchizedek is, first of all, verse 18, a priest of God Most High. Now, is that a different God than the God of Abraham? Look at verses 19 and 20. Abraham was blessed by God Most High. Verse 20, and blessed be it God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Clearly, we're talking about the same God. Melchizedek is a priest of the same God who has called Abram and blessed him and said that through him all nations of the earth will be blessed. Then Melchizedek vanishes from Scripture. Almost. Exhibit 3, the law at Sinai. Without turning there, we can go to the text in Exodus 20 and following, but there we find the tribe of Levi, as God gives this uh, law to Israel, His chosen people, they've now exited out of Egypt, and in that law there are regulations that, le- that the Levit- uh, for the Levitical priests. That is, of all the twelve tribes of Israel, only the Levites will be priests. This is established by the Word of God. It is his command, and there is no equivocation on this. Only Levites are priests. Mount Sinai, sometime after Abram's meeting with Melchizedek. Now, exhibit four, we have looked at already this morning, but I'd like to turn back to it, just to place our eyes on it once again. Psalm 110, verses 1 and 4 in particular. Psalm 110... 1,000 years, or over 1,000 years after Melchizedek and Abram meet, we come to Psalm 110, and the great king David, who is repeatedly shows up in these connections between Old and New Testament. In Psalm 110, David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Let that verse burn itself into your memory. It is a crucial verse in the New Testament. My Lord, remember, David is talking about someone who is going to be seated on his throne, and he calls this one his Lord. In the Hebrew idea, the father is always greater than the son, as we noted last week. And in the Hebrew idea, you could not call him then ever your Lord. But this monarch refers to one who will come after him as his Lord. This one, going on from last week, notice what it said about him in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now David is over a millennium removed from the meeting between Melchizedek and Abram. Very interesting point. Let that again rest on your mind for a moment. Let's go now to Hebrews chapter 6. As you know, many people have passed down the aisle of history by this point in time. Jesus Christ has come, He has died, He has risen from the dead, and the early church is thriving under its understanding of the Old Testament at the same time being terribly persecuted in the ancient world. And the author of Hebrews writes to individuals who are very concerned with the persecution that they are facing and will find they know in Judaism some freedom, some safety. And so there is a consideration on their part to participate in the Jewish expression of worship of God and the author writes to them about the folly of that plan. But in the context of the book of Hebrews, we jump right into the middle of it, but I'd like to pick up at chapter 6 and verse 13. Where we read this, Hebrews six and verse 13. "When God made His promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, "I will surely bless you and give you many descendants." And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now we're not clueless, are we, as to what this is talking about. This is Genesis chapter 12. The blessing upon Abraham that through him all nations will be blessed. And particularly here, Genesis chapter 22, where that promise is solidified, made more uh, formal in a sense as God swears by himself that he will keep his promise to Abraham. Now is that because God has a hard time with keeping the truth? No, he swears on oath by himself to help Abraham to trust that his promise will come true, that he will be a great people, and that through these people all nations will be blessed. So God swears on oath that he will keep his promise. Now we notice here the linkage. God did what he did for Abraham because that is the kind of God that he is. The promise God made to Abraham is applicable to his people today because he's the same God. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18. Verse 18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that is, His promise and His oath, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. I can be encouraged that God promised to keep His promise and took an oath to keep his promise to Abraham. I can be encouraged today by that because I serve the same God. You see the linkage in what has happened with Abraham and what is true in the life of the believer. Our hope is in the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. This one whom Hebrews will make clear came and died in our place as a perfect sacrifice. And this one who has risen from the dead and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. This is the one who has come. Now notice verse 19, in light of all of that, 619, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. That is our access to God now in light of the Old Testament tabernacle. Verse 20, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Where'd that come from? Psalm 110, right? We've just read it. That was exhibit whatever, four. I can't remember what the number was. That's Psalm 110. The author of Hebrews sees Melchizedek as a type of which Jesus is the antitype. Jesus is, declares the author, a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What in the world does that mean? Well, the very brief meditation David records in Psalm 110 is now expanded upon here in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the author makes some very bold claims here which are going to shake the world of somebody who is caught still in the old economy of the priesthood of the Levites. He says, number one, by way of proposition, that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Whoa! That's not what the Jews thought. There is no superior priesthood to Levi. Why? Because it came later in time. It replaced the Melchizedekan priesthood. It is later, and therefore it is better. No, says the author of Hebrews. Let's go back to Psalm 110 and think more carefully about it. We have the historical event that we have already read about here in the first two verses of chapter 7 of Hebrews. This Melchizedek was king of Salem. Everybody agree? That's just Genesis 14. And priests of God Most High. Any argument with that? There can't be. Genesis 14. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. That's just reading the text. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. No argument there. But now the author moves to draw out the typological significance of that event. Notice what he says in verse 2. First, his name means king of righteousness. Did you ever consider that as you read the Old Testament? Melchizedek, I mean, talk about an odd name, but there's a reason for that. It means king of righteousness. It's two Hebrew words sort of put together in the way the Hebrews often did, and it means king of righteousness. Have you ever thought of that, says the author of Hebrews? He's the king of righteousness. Not only that, but he's the king of Salem, the Hebrew word for peace, or a cognate of it. Throughout the Old Testament, righteousness and peace are repeatedly mentioned in the Old Old Testament as characteristics of the rule of whom? Of Messiah. He will be the ruler of righteousness and and the ruler of peace. Now we notice his office here, secondly, not only his name, but secondly, his office. Verse 3. Without mother or father, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Herein lies a great mystery for the Jewish thinker. He is king and he is priest. No one can argue that point from Genesis chapter 14. He is king and he is priest. This dual office was forbidden by the law of Moses at Sinai. Exhibit exhibit 3. Priests had to trace their descent from the tribe of whom? The tribe of Levi. And kings generally came from the tribe of Judah, and in any event, no king ever served as a priest in the Israelite economy. But here we have a priest of God Most High, The Genesis account trips all over itself to make it clear that this is the true God. And this one is a king, a righteous king with God's approval. Carefully consider the text of Genesis 14, the author of Hebrews says, and you will find further significance in not only what is said about this king, but in what is not said. About him verse 3 we noted that didn't we there without father or mother without genealogy without beginning of days or end of life you've read the book of Genesis I trust and if you have not you can know that the genealogies of the book of Genesis are crucial to the telling of the account The genealogical descent of every important figure in Genesis is clearly recorded and carefully traced out. This is vital because it ties back to Genesis 3.15 and the prophecy of the one who will come through, the woman that will crush the serpent seed. And Genesis is working overtime to help us trace out that line to whom? To Abraham. Genealogy in Genesis chapter 11 to Seth before him, and Enoch before him, and Noah before him in chapter 6, and to uh, Isaac and Jacob. And all all of these have their genealogical record clearly founded in the book of Genesis. And here, waltzing into the scene, receiving gifts from Abraham, the one who is blessed, is this Melchizedek and there's no genealogy anywhere. Now verse 3 is not saying that he had no mother or father. Some have taken it that way—that this was an angel, or it was a pre-incarnate Christ, or something along those lines. That's not the point at all, and we're missing how the author is arguing. I think if we see that, see it that way. What he is saying is this: as you read the Genesis text, this guy drops out of nowhere. There's no father recorded. There's no mother recorded. There's no death recorded all of the key players in Genesis, there is a major issue made over the fact that they died and where they came from. Not this guy. For all practical purposes, he is a priest with no genealogy and a priest whose priesthood never ends. Not in the record of Scripture. Now notice that Melchizedek, it says here, is made like the Son of God. Not the Son of God made like Melchizedek, can I press this analogy, and it won't work perfectly, but the flower girl is made like the bride, not vice versa. Melchizedek is made like the Son of God. One puts it this way, I believe it's Lane, who says, "...even the silence of Scripture is significant. The portrayal of a royal priestly figure who is devoid of parentage, descent, and commencement and termination of life evokes the notion of a priest who continues in his office forever." Another has written, what was true of Melchizedek simply as a matter of record was true of Christ in a fuller and more literal sense. The text will return to this link between Melchizedek and Jesus in a moment, but first the author stops now to compare the priesthood of Melchizedek and that of the Levitical priests who are still at the time of writing functioning in Jerusalem. Verse 4. Let's draw out some implications, he says. Just think about how great he was. That is whom? Melchizedek. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now that's a slam dunk for argument for a Jew. In the ancient world, the act of tithing to a priest was seen as an indication of subjection. It is a shocking thought. But this man, without genealogy, is greater than our great patriarch Abraham. This is the one Genesis 12 says the whole world is going to be blessed through him. And here is somebody blessing Abraham. Verse 5. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. We understand that. The Levites are the priests according to the law. Verse 6. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from... Abraham, put that in lights and have them flashing. He collects tithes from the great father of our nation and blessed him who had the promises of God. Here is one blessing, the one that God has blessed. Well, there's only one possible conclusion, verse 7. Without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater you're going to have to come to terms with the fact that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. That's a shocking thought to a Jew. The superior person always receives the tithes, so the superior person always gives the blessing. So, that is in like manner, the superior person always gives the blessing. Now, blessings here are not just, you know, Bless you. We, we get blessings when somebody sneezes for reasons unknown. But uh, th- that's not the point here. Their blessings of this time were formal events of committing someone to God almost as a priest, in a sense. A father would bless his children in a unique way. We know of the blessings of Isaac and Jacob and, and, uh, and the problem with uh, Jacob and Esau. And these blessings were big deals. And it was an indication that you were in the place of authority over another. This is this is foolproof. Verse seven. Now, notice verse eight then. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case by him who is declared to be living. That's a little stretch for us, but it's saying that in the first case, first part of verse eight, the Levites die. And there's a rule of succession. Because they die and their sons become the priests who collect the tithes. But remember here, this Melchizedek, the scripture never speaks of him as dying. So in his case, he's collecting tithes from Abraham in an eternal priesthood, at least the figure of an eternal priesthood. Verse 9, one might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. So if it got tough for Gentiles in verse 8, verse 9 really gets hard for us. But here is that idea of family solidarity that was so intrinsic to the Jewish way of thinking. What a father does, his son does, and all of his sons after him. The father is always greater than the son, and if the father does something, then the son can be said to have done it in him. So, verse 10, when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor, If Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek, then Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and Abraham is greater than Levi. Therefore, Levi pays tithes to a priest who's greater than him. Now, you've got to understand, this raises the heartbeat and the blood pressure of any Jew who's following along these lines. This is amazing thought. And it's really unimpeachable reasoning from the Old Testament text. But this is hard to swallow. Melchizedek is a higher priesthood than Levi. Now he moves to the second proposition. Christ's priesthood is the antitype of Melchizedek's priesthood. The inferiority of the Levitical priesthood is noted in verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? We have the demonstration of inferiority here in verse 11. As God designed the Levitical priesthood, He regulated its function in the Mosaic law. But if God believed that the Levitical priesthood could fully provide forgiveness of sin and fully reconcile believers to God, why did God speak prophetically through David in Psalm 110 of a different priesthood? The only answer is this. God understood that the Levitical priesthood would be a temporary measure. The greater priesthood was envisioned in this, what Hughes calls, a flash of revelation in Psalm 110 and there really isn't a whole lot in between where Melchizedek meets Abram and where Jesus Christ comes, we just have this flash of revelation in Psalm 110 that says Jesus will be after the order of Melchizedek or prophesies that. To think of anything greater than the law was virtually impossible for a Jew. Rabbinic interpretation said that the Levitical priesthood surpassed Melchizedek. The author is saying the exact opposite. You are failing to see the progression of salvation history. You're failing to see the, salvation, the progression of salvation history if you do not understand that Melchizedek is a superior priesthood. He is the type of a greater priest who would surpass the Levitical priesthood. And the objection will arise here. Now wait a minute. You're saying that the law God gave so dramatically to Israel on Sinai, the law which stipulates the Levitical system, you're saying this is temporary and obsolete now? This is the implication he draws out in verse 12. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. If the priest after the order of Melchizedek is here, then the Levitical priesthood is obsolete. And if the Levitical priesthood is obsolete, the law goes with it. Now this is an interesting and something that I had never thought about before at all, but very interesting how the author puts it here that really in the sense of chronological sequence, at least in the sense of reasoning, logic, logical sequence, the priesthood precedes the law. Uh, it's very easy to think that the law is established on Mount Sinai, and then God says, Now we're going to need a priesthood here to get this together and work this out. When in fact, it is more that God establishes the priesthood as a means of working with his people, and then says, Now I will encode a law that will allow them to share with the people who I am. Now that another priest has come, there's a whole new order. And this priest has come. And that is the point, the superiority of Jesus' priesthood in verses 13 and following. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. What does that mean? Jesus comes from Judah. Nobody in Judah has ever been a priest, Right? No one would argue that point. Verse 14, For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. He is not a Levite, point number one. Point number two, He fulfills the Melchizedekian type. Verse 15, And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. If Jesus has risen from the dead, he is like Melchizedek, and even in a superior way, he is one whose priesthood never ends. He is one with an indestructible life. The picture is Melchizedek is the flower girl. The coupled attendants who follow the flower girl are perhaps the Levitical priests in the picture. And who is the bride? I know that's a, a bad analogy for us because we're the bride, but hang with me on the analogy. The bride is Jesus Christ. Do you see the point? The flower girl was preparing you for the bride. Those couples that are walking and preparing you for the bride too, they're now past. And it is time for Christ himself to walk the aisle of history. And in fact, he has when he defeated death, he's here. The priest after the order of Melchizedek has come and his resurrection is proof. He is the Lord who is the son of David in Psalm 10, 110. David saw this greater son, verse one of that psalm, and he saw that he would be an eternal priest. And so, number three, this spells the obsolescence of the Levitical system. Jesus is not a Levite. He does fulfill the Melchizedekian type. And thirdly, the Levitical system, therefore, is obsolete. Verse 18, the former regulation, that is the old covenant law, the Levitical regulation, is set aside because it was weak and useless. It was weak. That is, priests themselves were sinners. They were people incapable of keeping the law. It was useless. That is, animals cannot honestly substitute for human sin. That's why they had to be repetitively sacrificed. Chapter 10. And they made, it says here in verse 18, nothing perfect. This whole system had to be set aside for, verse 19 rather, for the law made nothing perfect. It did not, that means, put people in a proper relationship with God. But verse 19, a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. That says one thing about the Levitical system. There was hope in it, right? This is a better hope. It's not that God harmed his people and left them without any encouragement. Like a father training young children, he was dealing with them in an elementary way. He was working to prepare his people for Messiah, which was a great and legitimate hope. But now that Jesus has come, now that the great high priest is here, we have a better hope, which permits us to do what? To draw near to God in a way that the Old Testament believer could never do. We have access to the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, the great High Priest. And as we gather on the Lord's Day here in this place to worship Him, we gather here because of what He has done. And we gather here as those who have been redeemed by His work. And we can come into the throne room of God like the Old Testament priest and walk right into the Holy of Holies and stand before the throne of God. And so we sing that song often, before the throne of God, above I have a strong, perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. I think on this basis, for sake of time, I'll just read what follows in this chapter, but I believe it will be self-evident what he is saying now. And it was not without an oath, verse 20. This goes back to Psalm 110. Others became priests without an oath. That is, the Levites, there was no particular oath spoken by God at their priesthood. But he, verse 21, came a priest with an oath. When God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This is Psalm 110, where it says that. You are a priest forever at the order of Melchizedek. Verse 22, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee or the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, There have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. Make sense? No Levite continues forever. Verse 24, but Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. No Levitical priest, no Aaronic priest could ever claim that. Verse 27, unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrifices for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who had been made perfect forever. This is a crucial point to determine if we truly understand what God is saying in his word. This priest came and ended all priesthoods. And in fact, those within the Christian context who say that there is a continuing priesthood, do you know where they go for argumentation since the 3rd century A.D.? They go for argumentation to the Levitical priesthood. And they say that Jesus Christ was a unique priest, but the Levitical priesthood continues on in the church. And what is so clearly missed is a place like verse 27. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all. And that will be taken up in chapter 9 and chapter 10, where the author devastates all priesthoods. An argumentation that is beyond answer. Because Jesus is the final high priest. He has done all that can be done. He does not need to be sacrificed again. He laid down his life once for all and is now the great high priest. What I hope that you will see through the development of this passage is that our salvation is no haphazard plan. There's several objectives that I'm driving at as it pertains to you in this congregation, to us as we consider God's truth. This is one. I want to continue to lay out the argument before us that God's salvation plan is no haphazard plan. He didn't figure out one day that some of Jesus' enemies were going to kill him and come up with plan B on the spot. He had this worked out perfectly from eternity past. The Bible is an intricately woven piece of art that unfolds in the biblical record over time. Secondly, I hope that we will also at least be able to consider that this unfolding revelation occasionally includes the use of types, the flower girl and her auntie. There's those people who grace the pages of Scripture or events on the pages of Scripture that are pointing to something deeper and fuller in the future. The goal of this type-antitype is not curiosity. The goal is to see how the universe runs. Now, you, you can find some scholars somewhere, I think I've read a few of them from time to time, who you would think that it's all about curiosity. Isn't this cool to see how this works in the Bible? But let's get beyond just to see how it works, and it is amazing as we put it together, but let's remember the larger picture is to see that this is how God runs His universe. Hebrews 7 is not an easy passage to follow, but it gives us a window into how God sovereignly rules. God carefully orchestrates the procession down the aisle of history. Just a couple of illustrations, I think, will ring true in your own mind. There is the tabernacle, where God's presence comes down in this cloud, which gives way in time to the temple, Where the cloud of God its His glory comes is so great that it drives the priest right out of the temple. And then there is, in the end, the great millennial temple where the Lord Jesus Christ, God's very presence personified rules. We could read the book of Matthew and see the exodus of Israel out of Egypt fulfilling The work of Jesus as he comes out of Egypt brought by his parents. Greater in God's redemptive plan was not several million slaves gaining freedom, but a little boy journeying north out of Egypt to the Israeli town of Nazareth. As God brings out his nation of millions of slaves, he has in his mind there is a greater son of Israel who's going to come out of the same country and he's going to enter into the promised land. God delivered his people out of Egypt as a paradigm for a savior who would rock Galilee with his miracles and provide deliverance over the slavery of sin for his people when he died on Mount Moriah. I was helped uh, this week by a tip from Pastor Pratt on a book by a man by the name of Folks, who wrote a book, The Acts of God, and it's been helpful. I'd like to share just a few thoughts from this book as we conclude. The Most High God, as we know, and Scripture teaches so very carefully, is not like the pagan gods. He is a God who can be counted on to act in the future as he has in the past. He is a God who we can know is just and fair and good and loving and right. He's acted that way in the past and he will act that way in the future because he's not like one of these arbitrary gods, these whimsical gods to whom you offer the sacrifices and wonder what they'll do next. Biblical history repeats itself, not in a spiraling, meaningless repetition, but in lineal, chronological fulfillment. This universe is going somewhere and it rides on the back of the God who saves and the God who judges and forgives and steers the heart of the king wherever he chooses. God's saving purposes are brought to fuller and fuller meaning as he continues to steer the ship of history to its destined end. Writes folks, typology reads into Scripture a meaning which is not there. Now that... We stop at that and say, hang on, we're not supposed to do that. But listen, yet it does not read a new principle into the context. It interprets the dealings of God with men from the literal context and then points to the way in which God has so dealt with men in Christ. And so the author of Hebrews sees in a simple exchange between Abraham and a little-known priest from ancient Salem an evidence that we have a great high priest who rules in heaven. And that's a fair deduction. If you gain nothing else, we need to gain this. The orientation point, the personified center of Old Testament narratives, is Jesus Christ. Without Him, they all become meaningless stories. And that is true not only of Old Testament narratives, that is true, true of world narrative, and that is true of your narrative. Jesus is the personified center of the universe. Only in Christ does the past have any meaning. Only in Christ does the present have any meaning. And only in Christ do you have any meaning. He is the supreme king and high priest, the ruler of heaven and earth. Do you recognize that orientation of the universe? The author of Hebrews says it this way to us by way of encouragement in verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. The salvation that Jesus provides is complete. It is adequate. It is full and rich, and it is there for you. It is available to those who come to God through Him. You cannot access the power of this high priest and the work of this high priest by going through other priests, whoever they may be, in whatever religion they may find themselves. We must come to God who will save completely as we come to Him through Christ. Because He always lives to intercede for us. He has a permanent high priesthood. He will, throughout all eternity, represent us to the Father. And that is all we need. In fact, if we think that we need anything else, we have not yet come to see who Jesus is. I hope that he is the center and the orientation of your life that you realize that he is the last and final and great high priest who has paid the penalty of your sin with his sinless life. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for this great high priest. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And words fail us to know how to come into your presence and to exalt in what you have done. I thank you for the faith that allows us to dare to believe that it's true. These truths are backed right up against the too-good-to-be-true. But they're real. And we know that they are because today there's an empty tomb. And we praise you together today as faith followers of Jesus Christ, as those who have come to place our faith in his saving work, we thank you for this great high priest whom we do not deserve, but who has taken our sin and paid the penalty and come into your presence with his own blood, pleading for us. May we not treat these truths lightly, but may we rejoice in your presence and know Thereby, to love you with all of our heart and to love our neighbors ourself. Teach us to love and teach us to appreciate what we have in Christ. And I pray for anyone who does not know you as Savior. I pray for those in this world who are yet bound to the Levitical system, whether it's the ancient expression or the contemporary, or some residual reflection in some other world religion. I pray, dear God, that you would open eyes to the knowledge of your word, that there is one great high priest who has fully satisfied your wrath toward those sinners who come to saving faith in you. I pray with all of my heart that you will draw people here among us today to that saving light, and that you will draw others throughout this world to the salvation that's in Christ. And may we sing with joy in our heart, as we consider our great high priest in whose name we pray as he prays. Amen.